Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy for Life podcast where we will be discussing maintainable, sustainable, conscious living. I'm your host, Sarah Grace. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to a new episode of Healthy for Life. Hope you're all having a great week. This week's discussion is on shared decision-making and bringing birth back into the hands of mothers. And that's actually the title of the book that is written by Dr. Brad Boots-Taylor. He's going to be on my show today and is my special guest. And as some of you may know, he is the doctor that delivered my son. Uh, My son was a breach and we found out at 37 weeks And I actually have a podcast talking about my whole birth story. It's pretty crazy. So if you want to go check that out, feel free to check back in on the list of uh, episodes and have a listen to that. But I was really stoked when he said that he was willing to come on my podcast and talk about his book and just talk about birth and mothers and making informed decisions and and using their voices. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today. And I want to really encourage you all out there to educate yourself, to know that you do have options and to look for the person that best supports you and your decisions. So I'm going to bring Dr. B on here and we're going to chat. Hey, Dr. B, thanks so much for being here with me today. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, Nice to hear your voice and speak with you again. Um, Brad Boots Taylor, of course. I am, um, I guess, a native of California, born in San Francisco, finished off high school years in New York, went into the military after that. I was on a special forces A team, Green Berets, for about four years. After that, went to college and then medical school in New York City. Um, and I did my residency in obstetrics and gynecology in New York as well, where we had a where we got a lot of um, hands-on clinical care for mothers, basically. A lot of hands-on, a lot of clinical management, a lot of learning how to do certain types of birth to include that of vaginal breach and vaginal twin deliveries, learning how to um, have conversations with patients and, and guide them through choices. With that said, I, after finishing the residency, I did a fellowship back in my hometown of San Francisco at University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. And that is where when you subspecialize in maternal fetal medicine, you get to appreciate the science behind um, the recommendations. Did some large animal studies looking at vascular flows and how it affects fetuses and giving certain medications. Did an ultrasound fellowship as well at the same time simultaneously. But the the thing about the fellowship training at UCSF is that it's the, it, it was pioneering fetal surgery where you would operate on a baby in utero and a mom who's pregnant, repair a, a potential anomaly and place the baby back in the abdomen and allow the pregnancy to continue. Sounds like science fiction, but the the key to that type of uh, training and and, and, and environment was one of ensuring that there there was a well-informed conversation. We would have group studies, group discussions with ethicists, sociologists, pediatricians, pediatric surgeons, obstetricians, and things like that. So you would truly have a conversation about the risk and benefits of certain things. And that is how you were able to pioneer uh, certain processes in medicine, but more importantly, include the, 
the patient, the client, the mother in those discussions. So you can hear her voice and do a back and forth. So at in my fellowship training, where we did some very interesting and fun uh, stuff in obstetrics, operating on the baby in utero uh, and caring for mothers and doing VBACs and teaching residents how to do breaches. It, w- it, it was a great foundation to understand that you need to have a conversation with patients about things, but to do it in a balanced way. So after that fellowship training, I went back to New York and I was a assistant professor in maternal fetal medicine at a large medical center, Beth Israel, where I spent that time teaching residents how to how to do the things that I had learned. And and that was great. That was great. It's great to have conversations. And if you notice, I don't say consultations, because that's more of a demand uh, relationship as opposed to a conversation about what the issues are and to have it in a balanced way. And so after uh, leaving Beth Israel, I came to Atlanta and I've been here ever since. Wow. So, that's the so story. <laughs> not to date you at all, but... <laughs> How long ago would you say, or what year really was it when you were in your fellowship training and you were, you know, witnessing VBACs and helping with these type of births? Um, my fellowship training was from 92 to 94, 1992 to 1994, by the way. <laughs> Be careful with that. So, yeah. Could somebody go now and, and receive the same type of training that you did then or follow and watch those type of situations? Or is it harder to find that now? Uh, yes, they can, actually. And in fact, uh, they now are performing uh, fetal surgery in about maybe seven or eight centers around the country. Uh, there's, there's Vanderbilt in Tennessee. There's a children's hospital in, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's, the, there's a center in Houston, I believe, as well. And well what it, about what about like VBAC, twin, and breach? Would that be harder to get to get in on? Um, that's a great question because you don't need to do a fellowship to attend or witness those. That can be done as a resident in 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 hopefully any residency training program. The challenge, though, is the senior physicians in the training program need to be able to support those options that you described um, willingly and have a sense of deliberateness about it. Because what could happen, you can go through an entire four-year residency program, that's how long those programs are, and not see a breech birth, a vaginal breech birth. You might see more cesareans than you see normal spontaneous labors. So the senior physicians in those training programs need to almost deliberately ensure that those birth options are supported and thereby the, the residents going through that program could at least have conversations about it, hear about it, and hopefully also do it as, as from a practical standpoint. Right, exactly. So, so the opportunity is there in summary, whether it's uh, enhanced uh, deliberately chosen or not, that's really going to be up to the culture of that institution. Exactly. So you said you took some time and you were a professor for a while and you were teaching these things that you had learned. What made you go back into obstetrics? Fast forward, I was in Atlanta for about 15 years and doing 
my specialty, which was perinatology, and it's also known as maternal fetal medicine. And when you're a maternal fetal medicine specialist, you don't have to participate in births at all. You don't, you don't have to go to the hospital and labor delivery suites and all that stuff. You can sit behind a desk and, and give advice, give recommendations, do consultations with patients and they're referring obstetricians. So you're giving guidance because you understand maybe a little bit more the science behind certain recommendations. So as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, you don't have to participate in the delivery at all. So what's critical in, in, in my journey was that after doing that for 15 years, I met up with some midwives at a meeting. We were talking about birth and, and, and they were somewhat you know, challenged by their, by their environment because a lot of the things that they know that could be supported weren't being supported. And I was saying, well, that's just basic obstetrics. What, what are you guys saying? You, you can't do a vaginal breach. And we're, I'm sitting behind a desk making a recommendation for breach for 15 years. But, but then in that moment, I came to realize that despite me making the recommendations, they are not necessarily being carried out or adhered to by the obstetricians. So if you can imagine, I was literally in a bubble for a decade and a half. So starting to work with those midwives, I realized that what was missing was choices mm-hmm. and, and how that crept into obstetrics to where choices were being narrowed is multi-layered, but I'll take a couple seconds to maybe clarify why that has happened. That there was a sense with residents that they may have been overworked, so therefore scale back on the number of hours that they can participate in, in certain things like labor delivery and things like that. So if you scale back the hours, you scale back the experience. And if you scale back the experience and the hours, you need to make sure certain things need to happen. So things are rush, 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 let's get it through. And so if you're if you're a resident, you're only seeing a certain piece of obstetrics. And then you don't see the breach, which takes a certain while to certain type of management. You don't see natural labor because that's that could be long. So as a resident, you don't see these options. And so over 15 years, that has been promoted to where residents had to have a certain less hours of training, more time off, if you will, <laughs> and not seeing births, not seeing them in a natural progression. So here I am, me, maternal field medicine person with this understanding about options and I've taught it in a residency program now working with a group of midwives and all we're doing is supporting choices that are science, uh, scientifically supported. There's it's safe to do these things. And in, in, in the case of VBAC vaginal birth after cesarean, it's even endorsed by our American college of OBGYN to promote VBAC, but you had people who weren't even been given those options. So I find myself scratching my head and saying, all we're doing is supporting what's supported by the literature. And so that's when I started to realize that there's a, there's a lack of these things from others, uh, at least in my community here in Atlanta. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that it's in all over the U.S., especially, I mean, you know, my own experience having to leave my state to come to you to have my son. Right, right. Also proof of that. But so I feel like that that kind of is what inspired you. You probably saw a need and you said, hey, I can do things differently. You got back into delivering babies. Right, right. And then all your years of experience is what you have put into your new book, right? Because that's really what I want to talk to you about today. But you're correct, Miss uh, Stevenson. I guess I can call you Sarah Grace. I presume. Yes, okay. you can. I don't make any sense. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Stevenson. 
<laughs> You're correct. Uh, the, the more I was uh, witnessing this, the more I was seeing that it was across the country and across the world, in fact, that despite science supporting choices, the, the individuals, the doctors, for lack of better words, the obstetricians, weren't able to be comfortable with those recommendations. So they couldn't support the choices. And so uh, you have mothers who have access to information through their computers in their hand, also called a cell phone. And they're asking their providers, their physicians, even midwives, to be honest, about the choices and they're getting maybe some pushback. And then, the, and, and then there's some misalignment in, in what those consultations and conversations look like. So where that leads to is how do you promote shared decision-making? And, and, so you, and so you're right in that in getting phone calls from people across the country, people such as yourself driving two, three states away, literally to have a conversation, not even to do what we're talking about sometimes. Um, I get it two, two or three times a week, in fact, a phone call with someone who's in Tennessee or North Dakota about, is it possible for me to have a VBAC? I'm like, of course. And, and so moms have access to the information. The, the, the medical establishment also has the same information, but the medical establishment is maybe, for a variety of reasons, less inclined to support those recommendations. Mm-hmm. So shared decision-making book this communication tool, if you will, is to hopefully let moms know that, you know, you're not crazy to ask questions. These things are possible. But now how do you guide the conversation such that it's more balanced as opposed to it being anxiety provoking and sometimes condescending and disrespectful to you? So shared decision making, I think, is a communication tool that I, that I think mothers will benefit from. Well, and it's one of those things that I always say, knowledge is power. And when you have knowledge and you know, okay, first and foremost, these things are safe. You know, a VBAC when done in, in the proper hands is safe and it's supported by science, the same with breach and twins. So you, now you know that, and then you kind of know, I think from your, uh, from your book is the questions to ask. And you have a voice as, as a woman and even as her partner, like you both have a voice for what you want and what you are hoping to get out of the experience, you know? Right, right, right. No. And, and, there's something that I describe in the book is called, uh, I call it the B score. And that can mean either bring birth back or Dr. B, depending on how you want to look at it. But, but it truly is a, a way to determine if you're in the right environment to even have the conversation about anything. And the B score consists of nine questions. And those nine questions are, are um, very low ball, you know, questions. These are not difficult, complex questions that, that, that a mother needs to ask her provider. And those nine questions are graded on, on a scale of 10 points each. So if you get all right, you, you get 90%. There's another question. It's a bonus question to, to, to give it a, a 10. And that's any question the mother wants to ask. But the nine questions are ones such as, and I'll pull it up here for you. First question, does your provider take time to actively listen to you? Number two, does your provider believe you can go into spontaneous labor after your due date? while monitoring your pregnancy safely and actively. Number three, uh, does your provider believe your pregnancy can be normalized despite any um, coexisting 
medical complications that can be managed safely. Uh, here's number four. Does your provider discuss your concerns with you with respect and balance? And so those are very low ball questions to see if the people you're dealing with are going to be able to have a, a open conversation with you. And it allows for things that come up like breach in your case or hypertension or, hey, now I'm trying to do a VBAC. It allows those conversations to take place so you don't feel as if you're being marginalized or you can't participate in the conversation. Exactly. Uh, one of the other questions on here, and this is for every obstetrician, uh, does your provider support and encourage VBAC, which is a, which is consistent with ACOG, that's the American College of OBGYN recommendations? Their inability to support ACOG recommendations is very illuminating. This is what is supported by ACOG. And if they can't support it, not that you have to have it, not that they have to support it, but how do you how do you envision yourself having a conversation about delayed cord pulsation? How do you envision having a conversation about uh, how long the labor should be if they can't support basic recommendations? So the provider app or the B-score is, to, is a tool also to let mothers know where they are. Because oftentimes, by experience, if they find themselves in a relationship with a provider, and it could be midwife or obstetrician, by the way, and they realize that, mm, I can't ask questions, or when things come up, it's a little difficult, or I can't talk about breach, but you may not do breach. I know you don't do it, but can we at least talk about it? And then point me to the place that I need to go find out, find out about it. And so the B-score helps mothers realize where they are before it gets to be the end of the pregnancy. And right. then they find themselves being uh, typically silenced, marginalized, and, and oftentimes there's a disconnect of distrust and all that stuff. So hopefully at the front end, even if you are late transfer of care, at the front end, um, there is that, uh, that understanding. And, and if I can talk about it two more seconds, say your B-score is 90%. You guys are in alignment. Then when things come up, you can work through them. If your B-score is at, like, say, 20 or 30%, you both know, the provider and the mom, the, the, the patient, you both know there's work to be done on this relationship. And thereby, when things come up, if, if not to anyone's satisfaction, you understand that that's where this was going, actually. But if you need to work on your score of your relationship, then when things do occur that you can't even plan for, you can be in alignment and work through them. Mm -hmm. Thereby, there's less trauma emotionally on both sides. The provider doesn't look at you as someone who's, hate to say it, the enemy. You don't look at your provider as someone who's the enemy. You're in alignment and you need to work towards that. Less right. finger pointing, less less accusations, less less emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's the hope yeah. of the B-score. Those That is such a helpful tool. And those are really practical things that a mom can apply to her pregnancy and to getting prepared. I think right. it's so cool to do that. And I know from my own experience and talking with many other women too, that your birth team is so important in the support that you have, including your doctor and, you know, not feeling fearful going into the situation. And you just have a lot of outside noise, but to be able to know that you trust the people that are closest to you, right. that yeah. is going to make even the labor, I think, so much smoother and more manageable. 
that's that's one hundred percent what it's all about. Because as as I say to to moms, you shouldn't have to have a PhD in obstetrics to know every question, every nuance, everything. There, there are too many things that occur, but when they occur with your team, you should be able to comfortably work through that. And I'm not, and I'm not saying one needs to ignore everything and just be Pollyannish about it, but to be able to say, wow, I didn't know I would be getting, say, a disease called cholestasis. It occurs about 30 weeks in pregnancy. It's itching. Those recommendations suggest that the baby should be induced by 36, 37 weeks. Induction may not have been on your radar. You may have never heard about cholestasis, but when the diagnosis is established, you should be comfortable enough with your team to say, okay, I understand induction is a recommendation. What happens if I don't induce? What, what happens? How do we, how do we do things differently? Not understanding what it is, but yet being able to work through it and thereby being able to accept the choices and and continue on on your path right. versus, oh, I never heard of it. Is this, is this doctor doing something to me that it shouldn't happen? I'm afraid to ask a question. They just want to induce people because I hear they want to induce people. It doesn't have to be that kind of accusatory mindset. It can be working through difficulties, you know, with some sense of respect for each other and consistency and some good outcomes. Why do you think that twin breach VBACs, those those type of presentations or whatever you want to call them are considered high risk today and they're not really supported. It seems to me that doctors are being almost kind of pushed into going first for a C-section. I don't know if it's a, a liability thing or is it money because you can bill a lot more? Is there any incentive for them to go for a C-section because we're seeing our rates go up? Correct. Um, uh, correct. Correct. And that's that's an excellent uh, question in that it speaks to if doctors are trained to work on a clock because of the change in the residency, right? Mm-hmm. If they're working on a clock and they haven't seen a mom labor for eighteen hours, then how do we change that? Um, so then you also see that hmm, uh, maybe twins should deliver by cesarean because we can put them on a clock. Okay. And then you you get a couple studies that say vaginal breach may be more riskier than uh, cesarean breach. And those studies have been refuted. There was a pretty noted one in 2001 that uh, called the term labor breach trial that literally said stop doing vaginal breaches. But it was flawed and it's been it's been dissected so many times that I won't even bore your audience with it. But so when you have the mindset that, wow, breach may be. Uh, a little risky. Twin vaginal birth may take some time and it's falling off my clock and I trained and never saw a vaginal twin birth. So you have all of that going into this queue and then add incentives, like you mentioned, economics, the schedule. What, why should we even do this since very few people actually do it in the first place? And, and so you have this multi-layered approach to obstetrics now to where Let's put everything on a clock. Let's marginalize everything. And thereby, if we do surgical births, we can minimize any potential risk that may be associated with the vaginal birth versus individualizing what those risks are and applying it to that clinical situation with that patient. So the clinical medicine that one gets through training, I mentioned to you, I was trained in, in, in New York City and I trained taught residents. 
you lose the clinical insight into here's a mom who has twins, a baby has a certain presentation. What's the safety of vaginal delivery with twins? If it's a breach, what's the safety of doing breach? You don't individualize it to that particular mother. If she's, if she's had a baby or two, if this is the first pregnancy, what you end up is giving it a label, high risk, it's used a lot. It, it, it actually silences the conversation. You yeah. can say, hey, mom, you're high risk. Why am I high risk? Well, you're 36 years old and um, you're pregnant. Well, you're high risk. Well, what's the high risk? You're 36 years old. Well, what does that mean? So you can label the situation and then keep it moving, basically. So you can manage her, do cesareans, label it, not have to do anything that re- requires any thinking. Like, okay, she's she's twins. She is this. This is hap- You don't individualize it. Right. And so that tug of war is what's going on in my assessment in obstetrics and maternity care. And moms have, like you said, knowledge is power. Moms now have an inkling that they have power. But now how do they continue to feel comfortable in that space of actually balancing out this equation where for years it's always been whatever your doctor says, but what does the midwife say? What does your doctor say? They went to medical school. They know more. Not necessarily. What do these studies say that are support by, that are supported by your organization, but you're not adhering to those studies? Right. So, friction points, uh, Sarah Grace, is, is is what you're what you what you even experienced. In fact, not to speak to your private uh, situation, but those friction points are happening constantly now. Yeah. So, well, so and it's like what I've, it's really like what I've been talking about on a, a lot of my previous episodes with doctors as treating the body as a whole, treating the patient Correct. as a whole individual person instead Correct. of just looking at treating a symptom or, oh, you have this, so we'll give you that. And, oh, you're this, so now that means you have to have this type of birth. And again, it's getting back to that looking at each person as an individual. Correct. And, the body as a whole. And, and that's where I've often found midwives come in because they tend to be more like that, especially home birth midwives. And I honestly have to say that you gave me new hope in the fact that there are doctors out there who take that approach to birth, who are willing to listen to the mom and to support her versus just take control of the situation. And so Thank you for that. But um, I would say, too, that that's why I've always encouraged people, check out a midwife. And not that they're all the same, but it's funny because when I was interviewing, I think it was the doula I ended up going with. I don't, it was somebody that I was interviewing and they mentioned you and they said, oh, he's like a a midwife in a doctor's body. Right, (laughs) right, right, right. right. And you get that sometimes, huh? Oh, yeah. I I get that moniker and I I laugh and smile and I I take it as a a sign of uh, encouragement, to be honest. Well, what they're seeing actually is they're seeing someone who's willing to have a conversation with you about options. And physicians, obstetricians should be able to do that. But the mindset is, 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 is what we've been discussing. Here's a disease treated versus treating the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, that's, so that's the deal. And when you say there should be other providers who, who, could, who could potentially learn from this model, 
I mean, I know a good deal of us in the country, and it's a handful. Having said that, I've learned that the medical model, if you will, chews up those good doctors and spits them out because they're constantly on the front line of that battle. And shared decision-making, the book is to take the doctor off the front line and put that power into the troops, which is the mother. Absolutely. So if the mothers in mass could say to their providers, why don't you support feedback? Why don't you support, hey, midwives? Why don't you support home birth? Why don't you support vaginal twins? Why don't you support me going into spontaneous labor and not getting and not being pushed on Pitocin? Mothers, those troops in mass, if they have a voice, will change the medical system, the machine, and make the providers better so that when someone has, they're going over their due date, they don't necessarily have to feel uncomfortable with their providers. And the providers don't have to feel uncomfortable with the patient because they've seen it over and over and over again versus controlling the situation, making every patient have an induction by 40 weeks. So the troops, the mothers need to almost in mass change the, the providers. And so one or two of us sticking around, sticking our necks out, getting our heads chopped off. That's, that's not fun, to be honest, but it allows small little incremental steps. I think we need a lot of people to say, hey, listen, my thinking is not necessarily having the, 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 the one or two doctors who you got to drive two states away to have those conversations. Right. It should be like every doctor, because all those moms are having those conversations. Yeah. Where they are. Yep. And that's the point of these type of conversations that we're having. And the point of my podcast even is to raise awareness on topics like this, to encourage people to use your voice, to speak up, to demand what you want, to talk about what you want. And even when it comes right down to our other aspects of our medical system and even our food system, all of those things you vote with your your dollars where you choose to spend your money or how you who you choose to support you know the more we push for certain things and we speak up and say what we want the more people will catch on and be like hmm i see a need here you know and and it's right. exactly what you're saying with with doctors we have the ability to choose what what we want to do and where we want to go. And I think you just have to have the faith to step out in that and to, to put your foot down or just to speak up really, you know? Right. Right. And, and, and that's where the communication tool comes in. And I mean, let me address that point you just raised uh, with a couple of examples. Um, so I, I got it. We all got a tweet yesterday from uh uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and she was highlighting the 19th Amendment anniversary was yesterday, by the way. She said, women were not given the right to vote. They wanted for themselves through sheer force of will. Generations of women and girls fought to be heard. Today, we honor their leadership as we mark 100 years since the 19th Amendment was passed. So it's the individual person who realizes I have a voice I have knowledge now because I got a cell phone, which is a computer. I have knowledge. We have a voice. How do we make sure our voices are maintained and heard? So Dr. X, Midwife Y, Dr. W, those little 
pods aren't enough. The individuals themselves, their voices in mass, doesn't have to be in unison, but in mass will help open up those options. Will help, will help doctors become better to say, I better respect this mother before I come in there and say, you want what's best for your baby, don't you? No, let me have a different approach. But it has to be the repetitive nature of that individual coming through that doctor's doors demanding that because she is comfortable with her voice and is not intimidated by the system. And that takes a mindset change. Absolutely. If you want to change people, you can't change their mind, but you got to give them tools so they can think differently. And that's where the shared decision-making book comes in and the B score and all that stuff. Moms need tools to think differently about where they're coming from so they can deal with the medical establishment. Yeah, that is so, so many good points. And I definitely encourage anyone, new mom, expecting mother of her fifth child even, mm-hmm. go out and, and get Dr. B's book and have it have a read. And hopefully you can apply the principles, even husbands or partners. Right. You know, because right. you want them on the same page with you right. in that situation. Because listen to this. You, you, you mentioned midwives. Uh, and home birth midwives. Very wonderful. I support them. I support the, the, the midwifery model of care. But when you do the B-score, you realize, oh, the midwife may has a obstetrician that is their supervising obstetrician who may not be in alignment with, with the midwife. So you're looking to the midwife to, hate to say, protect your birth, but there's someone she has to a- appeal to. Right. It's almost like, oh man, if I if I known that your obstetrician wouldn't, <laughs> so it's it's interesting, and their hands are kind of tied somewhat. And then it's, it's it's this issue of the supervising obstetrician who could potentially alter the 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 care of the pregnancy. I mean, for instance, you can be a, a, a mom who's seeing a midwife, and then if you develop gestational diabetes during the pregnancy. In, in many practices, the midwife can no longer care for you. So you went to the midwife, you got to be eight months, and now you're being seen by the obstetrician, didn't do a B-score, for lack of a better word. So there's no alignment. There's elements of distrust. You may be afraid to use your voice because you were very comfortable talking to the midwife. There was alignment. But now your voice is paralyzed. And then you realize, oh, you, you're going to now be induced at 39 weeks because of gestational diabetes, but there's no reason to be induced at 39 weeks. So then you have the induction and then that may lead to the cesarean. So it's, it's very tricky in, in who's around you, whether your voice can be heard. And, and I want to emphasize one thing, uh, Sarah Grace. It's not that the moms are daring the medical establishment. I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. It's, it's, the, it's the voice being heard and listened to. Because a mom is not going to say, despite all the science, despite all your experience, I'm going to do it my way. And boom, something interesting happens. She's not trying to do that. She's not trying to do a dare on this vaginal breach birth. She's hearing the information. She's realizing, okay, certain skill sets are necessary. Let me see where that is. But, you know, and that's what's happening when, when, when people are making healthy, safe decisions versus the high friction points. I'm going to have an unassisted vaginal breach at home no matter what. That is not where all this is going. 
and, and shared decision making as, as a communication tool is, I hope, will encourage moms to address that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was wondering, uh, I'm guessing you would know, with Pitocin and inducing labor, has are there studies that show that that can increase your risk for uh, C-section? Uh, there are studies showing higher cesarean section rates, but when, when, when you dig into the, the nuances of the study, it's why were they being induced? Was it was it an elective induction versus a medically indicated one, like say with high blood pressure? And then where were they are where, where were they in the period of their pregnancy? The closer you are to term, the more likely you're likely to go into labor with an induction. If you were like 35, 36 weeks, probably not. If you're a first time mom and you're being induced at 40 weeks for for no reason because it's protocol of the, of the office, then you're probably not ready to surrender to an induction. And so you have the psychosocial mind body thing going on right. that gets you. You know you you feel fine. You're only being induced because that potential that potential practice or provider induces everybody at 39 weeks, especially if you're over 40 years of age. <laughs> so so that mind body complex is not addressed. You mentioned before the the individual, the person. If you have a mom that's anxious for for whatever reason then inducing her at 39 weeks is probably good and probably will lead to a vaginal birth, even on Pitocin, because she wants to be induced. She's anxious about, she may have heard of a friend having a poor outcome. She is surrendering to that path. Her mind-body complex is on board with the induction and on board with Pitocin and on board with epidural. There is all of that that's going on in there that's not even addressed by most obstetricians, by the way. So individualized every birth situation. And what would you say to a mom who comes to you and says, you know, she's that open, anxious mother to have her baby, as most of us are later in the pregnancy. But what would you say if she was very determined that she did not want to have an epidural, that she wanted to have a uh, unmedicated birth? Would you tell her that's probably not a good idea to get Pitocin or have you seen many moms be able to have Pitocin and not have an epidural? It's hard to give a, a cookie cutter answer, Yeah, but it's individualized to, to her understanding why Pitocin is being suggested versus something else. And then if I'm on Pitocin and I'm uncomfortable and I'm not able to say get up or stand up and I'm not progressing, then I need to understand that how do I get myself more comfortable to keep going? Well, maybe it is an epidural or is it no epidural? I'm just going to be uncomfortable. Maybe I should have IV pain medication. So it's, it's having those, it's the ability to have those conversations along the way so that as you reach certain data points or points of information, you can pivot. You may have never ever thought you would have an epidural, but yet you find yourself on Pitocin, Contractions are of a certain intensity and you need some relief and you probably would benefit from epidural, but you're telling yourself you would never have had one. You never wanted one. I don't want an epidural. You probably need one. Mm-hmm. The conversation around that will help you surrender to the epidural and then you'll keep going. You'll dilate and probably have a vaginal birth. But those friction points need to be addressed along the way. Mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize for your audience these are not hour-long conversations about whether I should have an epidural or not. These are actually very 
short 30 seconds, two minutes, understanding of what the benefits and risk are. And is that relevant to my situation where I am at? There's a third piece to this this model I keep talking about, the shared decision-making model. is three components. Shared decision-making, shared responsibility, which means we are both responsible to the choices that we understand them to be. And the third one is the most important. It's called guided discovery. You discover, oh, I need Pitocin. I'm afraid of that. I need the epidural. You discover things and then you guide yourself through that. You may never get an epidural because in your mind and what you understand, you didn't want it. And that's fine. And if you don't say dilate, you're probably going to have a surgical birth, a cesarean. But that's okay because you chose not to do the epidural. You may not have dilated or relaxed. You went, you went in, in the direction of a cesarean. Healthy, healthy choice. Didn't choose epidural, needed a cesarean. Versus I've, I'm fighting against the epidural because of whatever reason and you end up having a C-section and now you're traumatized. Right. So guided discovery is, is the most critical point or part of this whole shared decision-making uh, approach. You, you should be allowed to pivot and turn and go back and forth and be embarrassed by saying, well, I want something different and not feel you can't have that voice in that. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to guide yourself through it. But it, ha- but it comes from what you described, the right team around you. Right. So you got the doctor who comes off a call and they come in and the other person you were happy with, now the doctor you never wanted to see is on call. You can't have this balance with your, with your alignment and your V-score. You can't discover things are different. So imagine all that happening. And that's why I can see why moms choose uh, midwives and and home birth. You're limiting the uncertainty of the relationship. Not that you should have every answer, but when things come up, you can can work through those. Midwives do that quite well. But oftentimes their hands are tied by the obstetrician. Why is she still in labor? It's been been 18 hours and I think think she should have a C-section. She's in the back room fighting against a C-section with an obstetrician. Coming back to the mom and smiling in her face, knowing she has this pressure behind her. Yeah. And I think another important thing for for people to keep in mind is when you, maybe you're somebody who's in the situation where you're not really happy with the care you're getting, or you are pregnant and you want to know, how can I find somebody who's more open-minded and who's more supportive? For me, I ended up finding you Dr. B by a lot of conversations. So, you know, I went to an acupuncturist that they all worked with pregnancy and with birth and they talked about different people that maybe would be good resources. And I found a midwife who, uh, you know, performed the external cephalic version and she mentioned you and it's like, so talking and, and kind of broadening your, uh, scope and your horizon and the people that you interact with, I think is huge. And that's sometimes how you can find the the people out there who are open-minded and who are willing to support you. Because I think some people just go to maybe who their insurance allows them to go to and they get into that practice and they're maybe not fully satisfied with it, but they're not really sure where else to go. And so it's really, you've got to like look outside the box and sometimes doulas, midwives, those can be great resources to really get your needs met. hundred percent correct. And, and, and to summarize what you said in my mind, when I hear you say that, 
she maintains her voice. Right. She's not afraid to, hey, what's an acupuncturist? Let me go ask. Hey, what's a what's a doula? What's a what hey insurance company, why don't you pay for my my chiropractic care? Mm-hmm. The million moms say you need to pay for my chiropractic care because in 28 weeks my back hurts, the insurance companies will pay for it. But it can't be one or two Sarah Graces running around saying, <laughs> seriously. So, right. so if it was a million of you guys running around saying, you know what? Let me maintain my voice. I don't have a PhD in birth. I am a, a hairstylist. I'm a, I'm a biochemist. I'm a businesswoman. I don't know anything about maternity, but I should be able to maintain my voice. And guided discovery will take you down that road. So she needs to maintain her voice. And how do you do that, you know, without feeling intimidated by the system? You grow up in this system thinking the great system knows best. And no, they, 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 not necessarily so. The medical system does a lot of great things, no doubt. Cesareans are necessary when indicated. But if the person, the mom, the consumer, the client in that system doesn't maintain their voice, the system will bulldoze them. I can understand, you know, so maintaining your voice, you're going to seek out the acupuncturist. You're going to see, oh, the midwife does ECV. Oh, you heard about this provider and you may want to go here. And that communication will be open versus being shut down, quiet, silence. Yeah. Yep. Well, I am so glad that you joined me today to have this conversation and I know it will be inspiring and educational for so many people. Check out Dr. B's book, Shared Decision Making, Bringing Birth Back into the Hands of Mothers, which is what we need to do. And that's yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what we're here doing. So yeah. And tell everyone um, where they can find you on, because I know you're on Instagram with C-Baby, right? Yeah, I am. And I'm changing things around a little bit. I think that I should have the right name for you. Stop to be um, cbaby.org should be, or if you just Google Brad Boots Tale, you'll probably find. Yeah, C Baby comes up. Yep. C Baby comes up, Dr. B. Um, and then, of course, if you want a communication tool, pick up the, pick up the book. It's, it's digital. It's, it's, it'll be a hard copy in about 30 days, but now you can get it off of Kindle, Amazon. And please review it if you find it to be of value. Yes. Yeah. That's great. Well, thanks again for joining me and um, have a wonderful week. Wow, so great and so much good information he shared with us today. Go check out his book, Shared Decision Making, and hopefully you will share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody who's thinking about having kids, an expectant mother, she's pregnant, whatever it may be. Really, really want to encourage people to use their voice, to step out in confidence Use those tools that he mentioned in the book of almost like scoring your practitioner to make sure that they fit with you right from the beginning so you don't get into a situation where later on down the road you're having to do a late transfer. But just know that if that is what happens, you still can do that. I mean, at 
you know, almost my due date, I was driving to Atlanta to go and have my son and to wait up there until I went into labor. So talk about a late transfer, but I went with my intuition. I went with my gut and I knew that, uh, that I could do this. I knew that there had to be a better way. And so I stepped out in faith and that's something that I really want to encourage you all to do. And this can apply not just to pregnancy and childbirth to any area uh, that you're in, whether it be medical health related, we have a voice and we have to do the, the research. We have to do the digging and finding what sits best with us. What makes the most sense for us as individuals and Once you've found that information, once you've done that research, you have to then move in faith in that. You have to step out. You have to demand what you want. And the more that we get together on this, women, the more that we stand up and we demand a certain level of treatment, we demand to be heard, uh, our opinions, our desires matter in the way of birth and in, in medical situations in general, the more that things will change and doctors will step up and be like, wow, there's a real interest for this type of practice. There's a real need for this type of practice and they will be there to meet our needs. So I really want to encourage you all to do that and to step out in faith, to share the good news with people, you know, uh, around you. So As always, uh, I'd love if you rate my podcast a five-star, share with a friend, and subscribe. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll talk to you all next week.